Kids are dismissed to Children's Church. Um, if we're going to be in Acts chapter 12 tonight, as we continue our study of the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, you can pull them out. If not, it'll be up there on the screen for you to follow along with as well. Um, but before we get into that, let's go to the Lord and pray one more time and just ask his blessing upon our time and his word tonight. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again just for this fact we can be here. We thank you so much, God, for this book that we hold in our hands. Lord, that it is not just... Uh, not just a group of words just written by man. It's your holy word. It's, it's your instruction manual for our lives, Lord. And it contains everything we need to live a life that honors you and pleases you. Um, God, the, what I love about you, Lord, one thing I love about you is the fact that you know us. You know the ins and outs of our lives. You know every struggle, every detail, every joy. You, Lord, you know every need that we have. Father, we, we know that as we think about our lives as individuals, God, you see the finished work in us because your word says that, that you who began a good work in us will be the one that completes the good work in us. And we know that good work, that completion comes through your word as we get in it, as we're encouraged, as we're strengthened, as we're convicted, as we're challenged. God, you know what we need tonight. And I just pray, Lord, that you would move in hearts and minds and lives, that, that we would leave this place changed, leave this place looking just a little bit closer to Jesus than when we walked in. Heavenly Father, just, I just pray you would just be honored and glorified in this time. Let this not be about the speaker, but let you speak through my mouth to your people, Lord God. I pray that um, all these things will be done in your name. Amen. All right, well, tonight, as I said, we're going to be continuing in our book of, in the book of Acts here, looking at chapter 12, um, looking at the whole chapter tonight, just for, from 25 verses. You know, so far in the book of Acts, um, these first 11 chapters, um, we, we've really seen in a lot of ways how the church as we know it today really kind of started to begin. You know, we, we saw like from the very beginning there in Acts 1 how the church was just, just a handful of followers of Jesus. You know, Jesus had died and rose again and ascended into heaven, and it was just a handful of Christians that were there, and yet now some 10 to 15 years later where we're at in Acts 12, I mean, literally the gospel has spread all over the place. People have been reached for Jesus in Jerusalem and in all of Israel and Samaria and, and the nations surrounding them, even up into Asia Minor, like modern-day Turkey and Greece and that area. I mean, literally by this time, we're talking a few hundred followers from the very beginning to tens upon tens of thousands of Christians by this time in just a short amount of time. And, and as we know, when God is moving like that, um, it's when Satan's going to work the hardest to try to squash the momentum um, that, it, that is taking place in the church, right? And, and so we saw here a couple weeks ago that, um, that the church had kind of a, a bit of a a time of peace, if you will. So when the first when church first started there in, in Acts where um, the Holy Spirit came and Jesus ascended and all that kind of stuff, the church just begins. I mean, we're talking about mass persecution. There was this guy named Saul of Tarsus, the guy that we know now as the Apostle Paul. But before he came to Jesus, he was an enemy of the church. I mean, he was chasing him down, putting him in prison, had many of them killed. Um, and, you know, thank God he got saved because in his salvation, that mass persecution ceased for uh, at least a time being, it sounds like a few years at least, but whereas we're going to see now that, that persecution is going to begin to kind of give a little bit of an uptick again in the church. And, and today, we're going to see that attack come through a man named Herod Agrippa, who was king of Israel um, in, that, in that particular area of Judea during that time. So I'm just going to start by reading verses 1 through 4, and we'll get into our, our text tonight. So it says this, about that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. 
When it says about that time, if you remember last week, um, it, it, the, the church was going through some famine. Remember the, the prophets came in and said there's going to be a mass famine in the area, and they sent Saul and Barnabas with a bunch of money back to Jerusalem. When it says about that time, it's about the time Saul and Barnabas got back to Jerusalem. Anyways, so it says that he had the apostle James, um, John's brother, killed with the sword. And when Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. And this took place during the Passover celebration. And then he imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of the four squads of four soldiers each. And Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after Passover. Um, and then we're going to stop there. So anyways, who is this Herod Agrippa? So Herod Agrippa, um, the name probably sounds familiar because of maybe of a little more infamous king, just known as King Herod. Um, if you remember when, um, like around Christmas time, we talk about um, this king that, that sent out a, um, a, a decree that all the babies in the Bethlehem area two years and, 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 and younger were to be killed, right? Well, that was King Herod. That was King Agrippa's grandfather. So now, again, we're talking about a number of years after that, so we're around 37 to 44 AD is what they say this Herod Agrippa's reign was, and um, he, he was kind of a tumultuous guy. In fact, he had a lot of problems with the Roman Empire. So if you remember at this time, Israel was not a sovereign nation. This was at the height of the Roman Empire, and Rome um, controlled this, and so he was kind of like a, a, a regent king, or king regent, if you will, of this area of Israel and Judea, and kind of north where um, modern-day um, Lebanon is kind of today and stuff like that. But during his reign, uh, he, he had kind of incurred this massive debt with Rome, which didn't make him very popular. Well, then it's it said that he was also running his mouth, and um, the, the, the emperor of Rome, Emperor Tiberius at the time, was not too thrilled with Herod Agrippa, and so he had him chucked in prison. Well, then when he died, when Tiberius died, the new Roman emperor um, kind of uh, came about, and he gave Herod his kind of job back but his as king, but, but his his reign was still like kind of in flux, if you will. And so kind of the thought was from reading kind of some of the history about this around this point was that to, to kind of like protect himself from Rome, he thought, well, I need to make sure that I'm at least on good terms with somebody. And so since he was reigning in Israel, he did the best that he could to make sure he was buddied up as much with the Jewish people as he possibly could. Because even though Israel was a province of the Roman Empire, I mean, the, the Jewish religious elites, I mean, the people that really ran the country were very, very powerful at this time. So he wanted to make sure that he was aligned with somebody, and that's who he chose to align himself with. Now, one way that he did that was was by persecuting the people that the Jews absolutely despised, which was the Christians. See, again, this is we're talking like 10 to 15 years after Jesus, but their hatred for the, Christian, for the Christians, for Christianity, for the church, had not subsided. I mean, their, their hatred was very, very, very much a real thing because they looked at the Christian church as a bunch of heretics, as people that were supposedly worshiping the same God that they worshiped, and yet it was something different, and they very, very much despised the Christians and wanted to do all they could to stop it. And so the fact that Herod was going to go along with them and, and take care of it made Herod a friend, right? The, the enemy of my enemies is my friend, kind of like that old saying goes. And so one way he did this um, was he's like, hey, if we're going to do it, we might as well go all in. We're not just going to persecute anybody. We're going to go after the leaders. And so one of them he goes after is James. Now, there's kind of three Jameses that we know. One is James, the brother of Jesus. We're going to talk about 
about a little bit later. That's not that James. There's also James, the son of Alphaeus, which is one of the disciples. Not that James. This was James, the brother of John. Like, so the, the, the two brothers, like James and John, the, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, if you will. This was that James that was killed. And it says that he was um, just executed, but most um, theologians and most Bible historians say that he was killed by the means of beheading. Now, that don't sound very nice, but uh, that's kind of the way things went. Now, but just an interesting note about James. According to um, one of the a Greek historian of this day, his name was um, Eusebius, it said that the soldier that was guarding James before his execution was, was so affected by his testimony of Christ that he got saved and actually willingly was executed right alongside of James. Isn't that kind of a cool thing to think about? I mean, that, that, I mean e- even on death row, James was still preaching Jesus. He, he would not, he refused to be quiet and kept on telling people about the Lord. So with Peter, with, with James out of the way, um, Herod Agrippa went after his next best target. In fact, probably the best target he could probably find at the time, which was the Apostle Peter. Um, the Apostle Peter was really known as the leader of the church at this particular time, and so they had him arrested, and, and they made sure that he, he was in a maximum security situation, right? Um, there was four guards that were always with him, so it seemed like there was four different shifts. They'd work six hours, and he had two guards standing at the door so he couldn't get out, and two guards sitting next to him that he was actually chained to. So whether it was their ankles or their wrists or whatever it was, so he was in an impossible situation. How do you get out of that, right? You're chained to two soldiers, two more soldiers, your arm right there. It looks like you're kind of a sitting duck. Why were they so serious about this? Well, if I had to guess, maybe somebody remembered what happened back in Acts chapter 5 when Peter and all the apostles were arrested too, and like an angel saved them and got them out of prison. Well, they wanted to make sure that whatever happened back then didn't happen again. So they chained Peter up to these soldiers, and that's where he sat. Now, this was literally political persecution at its finest. Like Herod really had nothing against the church that we know of anyways, that this entire thing was a means to an end. It was something he was looking to benefit himself completely from. Again, it was all about he had trouble with Rome and he was trying to align himself with somebody to be in somebody's good graces so he had support. But it's amazing what people will do for power. You know, you think, you think about Political persecution, things have not changed all that much, have they? Um, even as we think kind of in, in, in our own day. But, but, but as we think about this particular thing about, about James, about Peter, these stories aren't in here just to look at and go, oh, wow, that's interesting. These things in so many ways are foreshadowings of something that's still coming. Even, even could be in our day someday, maybe not in our lifetime, but what we see here in Acts 12 is something that, that we as Christians had better be prepared for. You know, we, we hear a lot of Christians today talking about the last days and, and the end times, and, and boy, we, we may be in those end times, and, and, and the reality is we could be. You know, we, we don't know. I mean, the, we know Jesus is coming back someday, and we know um, one thing that's going to happen before Jesus comes back is that there's going to be mass persecution of the church. Um, there are going to be people imprisoned, people martyred for their faith. In Revelation 20, chapter 20 and verse 4, it talks about souls that are before the throne of God that had been beheaded for their testimony of Christ during this tribulational period before Christ returns, right? And so it's something that, it, that as Christians, we have to set in our heart that 
If, if this comes in our lifetime, we may experience in real time what James was experiencing, what, what Peter was experiencing, what the apostles were experiencing in this first century church. And it's something that I, that I would really encourage every single one of us to spend some time thinking about that. Man, if, if my life was on the line and, and I had to make the choice, am I going to stand for my testimony of Christ or will I deny him to save my life? Boy, that, that, that'll be a tough thing, but we have to set in stone today, now, that, that man, whatever, when that day comes, I'm going to stand for Jesus. Anyways, as we move on to our story here, verse 5, I, I, I really like verse 5 here. It says that, but while Peter was in prison, the church prayed, and they prayed very earnestly for him. Like, I love this, because instead of the church fleeing town in the night. Um, If the apostles were being arrested, I mean, all Christians were a target, right? They knew James had just lost his life, and instead of fleeing, what'd they do? They gathered together in one place and began to pray. And it wasn't like your your typical prayer where they get together for a few minutes and and throw up a couple words and go home. No, it says here that that they prayed earnestly. I mean, it's like the, this deep prayer, just crying out before God, just pleading um, on Peter's behalf before the Lord. In fact, the, the, the Greek words here, the, the, the original language this was written in, it, it's the exact same words that's used in the Gospels when Jesus was at the Garden of Gethsemane praying. Like when he was just pleading before his Father, take this cup from me. And it talks about how like he, he, he was so stressed because of the prayer that he was in, the situation that he was sweating drops of blood. That's the picture you get of these people that were praying for Peter. It wasn't like your atypical, oh, save him, Lord. I mean, they were pleading on their hands and knees, I pictured them, for God to, to save him. We get to verses 6 um, through 11, and it says this. The night, before Peter, the night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate, and suddenly there was a bright light in the cell. And an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up. And, and the chains fell off his wrist. And then the angels told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. And so Peter left his cell, following the angel. But all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. And they passed the first and second guard post and came to the iron gate leading to the city in this open, in, in this open for them all by itself. And so they, they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. And Peter finally came to his senses and, and says, it, It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from the Jewish leaders and what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. I love verse 6, where, where it says that, that Peter was asleep. I mean, this was the night before his life was surely going to be over. I mean, it, one of his closest friends, James, had just been, had just been killed, and, and he, his head was next on the chopping block, and, and yet he was sound asleep. How is that possible? It's possible because he had the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That's how it's, he was. He was a man leaning on the promises of God. Peter wasn't fear, fearful of death, but, but I think even more than that, I think Peter realized that this wasn't his time. 
I, I'm, I mean, I, obviously I wasn't there. I wasn't in Peter's mind. But I, but I can't help but wonder if as he was sitting there, his mind went back to one of the last things that Jesus had told him. See, after Jesus had died and rose again, shortly before he ascended into heaven, he told Peter in John 21 and verse 18, he said, Peter, you, you are going to die, but it's not going to be till you're very old. You're, you're going to be crucified, essentially is what, you're, what, what he was saying, but it's not going to be till you're, you're well on in age. And Peter knew that, that Jesus had commissioned him. In that same passage in John 21, he says, Peter, you're going to be the one in charge of my church. You're going to be the one tending my flock, tending, my, tending the people, and you're going to be in charge of, of building this thing. And so in his mind, I'm sure he was sitting there going, I don't know how it's going to happen, but, but God's got this. And the fact of it was, is even if he would have lost his life, he was still at peace. He, he'd seen the resurrection body. He'd seen the resurrected Christ. He saw him ascend to it. He knew what he had to look forward to, and he was completely at peace with it. Completely out cold there in a prison cell chained to two soldiers. I also just wonder if this had something to do with what he wrote later on in his life in 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, where he says, give all of your worries and cares to God because he cares for you. Like even in prison with the threat of death, Peter was so full of God's peace that he was sound asleep. You know, no matter what we deal with in life, God's peace is something that we can count on. It's not just something we read about. It's something that's available to us. We can experience it in real time in our lives. He promises peace in his word. But it's something that we have to receive by faith. It's something we have to, to, to ask for. We, we have to lean on the Lord to, to experience it. And Philippians 4, 6, and 7 are two of my favorite verses that I've, I, I quote so often. That this says, tells us that to be anxious for nothing, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to, to present our request to God. And the promise that follows is that the peace of God that, that transcends or surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I can tell you that peace is real. I've experienced that peace. I've experienced those times of, of, of utmost sorrow and grief where the Spirit of God came over to me, and I was, it, it was just gone. It was the craziest thing I've ever felt in my life, but I've experienced in real time. It was like this flood over me of peace that the Lord gives us in those times, but we have to be leaning on Him, trusting in Him. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4 tells us that, that you will keep us in perfect peace, all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. He's a firm foundation that we can lean upon, and we should. You know, the Bible is clear that, that God's peace is available no matter what we're going through, yet so often, like that old song is, I, I, song says, I think we, we forfeit the peace. Like, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what we grease we often bear. Why? Because we don't take it to the Lord in prayer. We try to hold the burdens ourselves. We try to carry the burdens ourselves instead of just giving it to God. He's there. He wants us to lean on him. I, I think of what, what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where he says, that, that he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm, I'm gentle and humble heart. You're going to find rest for your souls. It speaks of like two oxen, like an ox yoke that's like a big piece of wood that goes on the shoulders of both of them. And, and he's saying, look, lean into me and I'll lift up the weight and carry it for you. I mean, we can have the peace of God no matter what we're dealing with, no matter what we are going through, if we choose to lean in to the Lord. You know, that works even in death. 
even if it comes to that point in our life where our life is on the line, where somebody's saying you either choose life or choose to reject Jesus, you know what Jesus says in John 16, 33? He was telling his disciples about his coming death and, and just in, in the trials they were about to face. And he says this in verse 33. He says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. He says, here on earth you will have many trials and many sorrows. But he says, take heart because I have overcome the world. We have nothing to fear. To be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're going to be with him forever and ever. See, this is something Peter had learned well, and he seemingly had no fear or anxiety because he wasn't just asleep. The guy was absolutely out cold. I don't know how this went, but, but it says the angel came and hit him in the side. I mean, it was like he was like, Peter, 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 wake up, you know. I mean, get up. It's time to go. So I have three kids, and the one will know who I'm talking about, but one of them, it takes like four times in the morning to wake up. You go wake him up. Okay, okay. I'll get up. You go wake him up again. I know, I know. And finally, the fourth time, get out of bed. You know, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like uh, that. In my mind, that's kind of how I picture this moment with the angels. But anyways, the angels like, look, get up. Get dressed. And as he did, like, the chains fall off of him. And, and he gets up and he gets dressed, but he thinks he's dreaming. And, and the angel leads him out. And he's like, you know, bye to the, to the guards. And he goes past the next, second set. And then he gets to the city gate. It, it all, like a movie. It just, you know, kind of opens up. And, and they walk out there. And, and like, finally, his, his eyes are open. And he, he this was real? I mean, he, he thought it was a vision. And yet it was absolutely real. This angel had rescued him and delivered him from this, this place, this, this certain death that he had. And there Peter was, freed. Man, that had to have been just an absolutely amazing thing to experience. My question is, is like, how did they get past the guards without him seeing? I mean, came invisible or something. I don't know. I mean, you know, there is something about a, another dimension that is, that is a very real thing, uh, a dimension that's here among us that we can't see, that, that there's angels, that there's demonic spirits, that there's spiritual warfare going on. Whether he went into that next dimension and snuck by, I have no idea. I literally have no clue how this worked, but whatever it was, it was an absolute incredible miracle of God, and he was set free. Let's go on to read verses 12 through 17. Because when, when he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. And he knocked on the door and the gate, and, and the servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was over, so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. I said, you're out of their mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided, well, it must be an angel. I don't remember how far I said I was supposed to read. Verse 17, okay. Anyways, um, they said it was an angel. And then uh, verse 16, Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking, and when they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He, he motioned for them to, to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Then he says, tell James, now this is the James, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. So, so tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said. And then, uh, then, then Peter went to another place. And at dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers and about what happened to Peter. And we'll finish the rest of that here in just a second. So 
Here we're told that, that Peter, after he finally wakes up and realizes that it wasn't a dream, he was actually free, he goes to Mary's house, who was the mother of this person named John Mark. Um, so the first time in Ash, we're, we're introduced to this guy that I'm convinced was from the south of um, Israel, because only in the south you get names like that. Now you go down south, you get like people like um, Peggy Sue and, and Ellie Mae and my favorite, Billy Bob. You know what I'm talking about? I, I'm, I'm related to some of those people, so... I don't know if this guy had a southern draw, but he was John Mark. And so John Mark, we're kind of introduced to for the first time here now. But more importantly, John Mark is a pretty important figure in Scripture. Now, in Colossians 4.10, we're told that he's actually the cousin of Barnabas. Um, so one of Barnabas was co- the same Barnabas that, that like, trusted Saul, who we know was Paul. They brought him back to Jerusalem. They had a big part in, in the Apostle Paul becoming the Apostle Paul. This was his cousin. And maybe even more significant than that, in the Gospels, it's Matthew. What's the next book? Mark. That guy wrote it. John Mark was the one who wrote the book of Mark, or, or the Gospel of Mark, in our New Testament. So, anyways, this was the home that all these Christians were gathered together at for, for prayer. And, and, and Peter, he gets there and, and begins to knock on this door. And this little young girl named Rhoda gets there, and Peter's like, let me in. And she doesn't even open the door. I mean, she's like so excited. She comes back and tells the people, he's here, he's here, Peter, Peter's here. And they're like, girl, you're out of your ever-loving mind. He's not here, he's in prison. Like, weren't you just praying for God to do something? And they were like, no, it can't be. And she's like, no, I'm serious. I I heard his voice. Did you see him? Well, no, I didn't open up the door, but I know it's him. I know his voice. It's got to be an angel because Peter's in prison. Now, it is interesting to note that they really believed in the idea of guardian angels. And to be honest with you, when it comes to Scripture, it seems to be a very real thing, for believers anyways. Um, in Hebrews 1.14, we're told that, that angels are ministering spirits um, that, are, that are sent for those who will inherit salvation. So Christians, Christians have angels that minister to them. Um, Jesus even said in Matthew 18 and verse 10, he told his disciples, Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels are always in the presence of, of my Heavenly Father. And so there, there's something to this reality that, that we have angels among us. And, and if you know Christ the Savior, you, you have one that is ministering to you and, and active in your life. How cool is that to think about, that you have your personal angel from the Lord that, that, is, that is ministering to you? Kind of a neat thing. Now, the bigger deal to me as I think about this little piece is the matter of the amazing faith of this servant girl and, and let's just say the, the short, I don't want to say lack of faith, but just the short-sightedness maybe of the rest, or, or maybe just their, their lack of belief in just how powerful God actually was. Now, I mean, you, you think about this whole situation. This girl hadn't even seen Peter. She just heard his voice and was like, it's him. It just, it's instant faith, like childlike faith. It's him. He's, he's free. Our, our prayers have been answered. He's here. He, she goes back and tells the others, nah, he's still in jail. Now, I mean, to their credit, you know, they were at least praying. But to me, I just can't help but wonder even just a little bit, like, whose faith was God responding to here? <laughs> it is interesting that, that, the, that the servant girl is named, isn't it? That just some random servant girl, Rhoda, she's named in Scripture 
for incredible faith. Just, I don't know, just kind of a neat thing to, to think about. You know, and just, uh, I, I just wonder how often do we really believe what we're praying? Do we really believe it? I think sometimes we pray things and we pray them out of routine, but maybe, maybe we don't believe them. I, I don't know. I mean, God responds to people that pray in genuine faith. Prayer is a powerful thing. We should never underestimate what God can do when His people call out to Him in faith. Now, I, I don't know whose prayers God would respond to. Probably all of them. I mean, I, I think to an extent that, that many, many times God responds to our prayers even though our faith isn't what it should be. And, and in those times, He proves Himself. And as I'm sure it did in these people's lives, our faith has grown. I mean, can you imagine... Can you imagine how they grew in that moment? When they're like, wait a second, we were praying for this exact thing, and like, God did exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. We thought maybe he'd just be declared, you know, innocent at trial or something, and yet here he is in the middle of the night set free by angels. I mean, in that moment, I guarantee you their faith had to have grown. And God does that in our lives too, even though we lack faith at times. Well, they finally believed with their eyes. You know, so they, they let Peter in. Peter goes on to explain how he escaped. And he tells them to, to tell James and the rest, of the rest of his brothers, the apostles. And, and then he went away. I mean, we, we don't know where he went, but he, but he went away to serve another day. And, and that's kind of where that part of the story ends. We're going to see Peter relate one more time in the book of Acts. And really, we don't see a lot more of him. Really, most of the book of Acts kind of shifts and focus on, focuses on the apostle Paul. But, but now for the rest of this story here in Acts 12. Let's read verses 18 through 25 after I get a little drink of water. <clears throat> so it says this, At dawn there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him, and when he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. And afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they sent a delegation to make peace with them because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and an appointment with Herod was granted. Um, when the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robe, sat on his throne, and made a speech to them, and the people gave him a great ovation, shouting, It's the voice of a god, not of man. And instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with the sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of bringing glory to God. And so he was consumed with worms and died. Meanwhile, the word of, the Lord, word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. And the next verse 25 really is, has to do more with um, what we're going to see next week. But when Barnabas is all to finish their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, most likely to Antioch, taking John Mark with them. And the official first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul really begins. And so if you can kind of get the scene, <clears throat> put yourself in those sho soldier's, soldier's shoes for just a minute, right? So you had one job. I mean, think of Herod. You had one job. One guy. You two were chained to him. What about you two? They were at the door. I mean, can you imagine how this went? I mean, th those, two, those two guys at the door were like, 
What are you doing? How do you let a guy go the shame to you? And they're like, well, what about us? There's only one door out here. What were you guys doing? Were you sleeping? Were you drunk? What was going on? I mean, put yourself in their shoes. There was no explanation. There was literally zero explanation because it was an absolute miracle of God. And Herod was so angry that they lost their lives. Which according to historical times, like if you lose a soldier, whatever sentence they were going to get, you now get yourself. And so more than likely, they were off of their heads, just like James was. I mean, I almost feel sorry for the guys to an extent. I mean, trying, trying to try to explain something that's completely illogical. <laughs> it was impossible to explain. That's kind of the situation that they were in. As for Herod, he takes off to Caesarea for some downtime. And during this time, um, Herod got mad at the cities of Tyre and Sidon. So Tyre and Sidon were cities on the kind of the Mediterranean coast up in kind of northern Israel. They're like Phoenician cities, if you will. Like, if you can picture Israel's here today, like Lebanon is right here. It's like basically up there in that area. Anyways, at this time, Tyre and Sidon were very much dependent upon um, Palestine or Israel, Judea, that type of thing for, for a lot of their commerce, especially at this time for a lot of their food. And they were kind of, um, you know, had problems with Herod at the time. And so um, they, they sent some delegation to try to try to schmooze Herod over just a little bit. And, and, and finally, um, they, they do, and they get an appointment with Herod. And, and, and Herod comes in in all of his pomp and circumstance. And, 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 he, and he, you know, he, he comes in and gives this just beautiful speech, and I'm sure like in this incredible like sucking up moment, all the people in the crowd are just like, oh, he's not a man. He's a God. Oh, look at him. Bow, bow. I mean, picture him. They're bowing down and worshiping, praising Herod for who he is and for this incredible speech that he, that he gave. Now, Herod could have done one thing. He could have been like, look, only one deserves to be worshipped, and that's God. Well, he didn't. He didn't. Instead, he was just like, yes. Yes, worship me, you peasants. He, he took it. Well, his glory didn't last long. As, as he was sitting there receiving all that worship and praise, have you ever had a bad gas pain? <laughs> I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about. Like one of them. <clears throat> oh, what? One of those? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, we've all experienced it. Like, where's the bathroom? Type of moment. Well, he gets the worst one he's ever experienced in his life. But it wasn't a gas pain. Um, an angel of the Lord struck him with probably whatever it was, worms, it says. And, and literally, this man, over the next five days, was eaten from the inside out and died. I mean, gross. I mean, so anyways, Josephus, which was a Jewish historian of the day, this is what he said about this moment in Herod's life, in the end of his life. Picture this. He says, he put on a garment made wholly of silver. So an entire silver garment. So he stands up in the sun, and this thing just sparkling and glowing, if you can get the picture, right? And of a contexture truly wonderful, and, and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh re reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a, a horror over those that looked so intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from another, and another from another, through, um, though not, anyways, he says that he was a god. 
Anyways, then a severe pain also arose in his belly, and he began. It began in like this most violent manner. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly, after five days, he finally died. I mean, it's just like, yeah. What that seems though, again, like I told you before, there's a lot of things in Scripture that are foreshadowings of things to come. It seems that Herod here got a taste of what many people are going to experience for eternity. I can't help but wonder if the plague that God struck him with here, here with these worms is the same worms that Scripture talks about that are going to be present in hell. Mark 9, verses 40, verse 47 and 48, Jesus says this. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into the, into the fires of hell where the worm never dies and the fire is never vanquished. God spoke also of this in, in Isaiah, and this, this one just still blows my mind, but this is when we're in heaven reigning with him, not even new heavens and new earth. It, it talks about, just listen to what it says here in Isaiah 66. 22 through 24, it says, As surely as my new heavens and earth will remain, so will you always be my people with a name that will never disappear, says the Lord. In verse 23, it says, All humanity will come to worship me from the week, from week to week, and from month to month. And as they go out of the city, worshiping the Lord Himself, as they go out, they will see dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me, for the worms that devour them will never die, and the fire that burns them will never go out, and all who pass by will view them in utter horror. That's crazy. And yet, this is the reality for people that don't know Christ the Savior. I don't know about you, but I am thankful for Jesus. I am thankful that he, he took the punishment that should have been mine on the cross. He bore my sin that I could be saved. And if you know Christ, he did the same for you. You know, John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes upon him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That perishing isn't just like an instant end. It's a perishing that goes on for eternity. It's a perishing that, that that's never ceases. You die, and yet you never die. Yet if you know Christ, he took that away. R listen to Romans 3, 22-25. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin, and people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life by shedding his blood. That's what he did for us. The cross represents more than just torture. It represents our salvation. It represents the fact that, that Jesus suffered in our place. He took our suffering so we didn't have to. He, he, he died so that we could have life. If it wasn't for Christ, we would be in the same situation as Herod one day. 
I mean, it really is amazing. Romans 5, 8, and 9, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to, to die for us. While we were yet sinners, and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. See, those who are in Christ are no longer condemned. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 is my, one of my favorite verses in all Scripture. There is for, therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We have nothing to fear in death. There's not punishment. There's not hell. There's only glory. There's only pleasure. All because of Jesus. And, and how do we attain that? How do, how do we get there? Like, how do, we, how do we attain such great a gift? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. We don't have to run a 100-mile marathon. We don't have to do a bunch of penance. We don't have to do all these crazy things. No. We, we look to Jesus Christ and what he did upon that cross and what he did in his resurrection. That's the gospel. Jesus died and he rose again. And if we looked at those things and say, look, I'm a sinner. I, we've all sinned, like, just like Romans says. I'm a sinner. I can't get to heaven on my own. My only way is through placing my faith in what Jesus did. So Jesus, you come into my life. You be my Lord. You be my Savior. You be my King. I need your forgiveness. I want to live for you. Save me. Friends, that decision is an eternal decision that will save us for not just today, not just tomorrow, but in 10 gazillion years will we still reigning with Christ. In spite of the fact that we've sinned, in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. And it's amazing grace, truly. Romans 10.10 10 says it's by believing in our heart, in our soul, in our being that we're made right with God. And it's by our opening, declaring our faith that we're saved. But can I tell you something? When people refuse God's offer of salvation, when people refuse to bow their knee to Jesus as Lord and King, they've in essence committed the same exact error as Herod. If you can picture our lives in each of us as individuals, picture a throne upon your heart. Not your literal heart, but upon your, your very essence, upon your very being. There's a throne. And there's only one king that can sit on it. Only one king that deserves worship. That throne's meant for Jesus. He's the only king worthy of worship. But when a person rejects him, what do they do? They sit upon the throne themselves. And they live their lives worshiping themselves. Everything's about me. And in essence, they've committed the same grave mistake as Herod did. And unfortunately, at the end, for all of eternity, they're going to experience the same penalty that Herod experienced. I don't know about you, but Jesus is a far, far better choice. So as we close, just a couple closing thoughts regarding this passage of Scripture. One, we need to remember that there is no situation that we will ever face that is too big for God to handle. You know, our verses today, James had already been murdered. Peter, next in the chopping block. I mean, from the naked eye, I'm, I'm sure it seemed like this was just an impossible situation. And yet, as Peter's experienced, proved, God is the God of the impossible. And he still is. And there's nothing we're ever going to face that God can't get us out of or get us through. And in those times, we have to choose to 
lean on Him. You know, sometimes God may lead us through a storm of life. Sometimes He may remove us from it. But either way, if we lean into Him, we can experience His peace. He, he will deliver us in one way or another. Whether it's out of the storm or peace through the storm, He, he will deliver us. You know, the Bible tells us that, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if God could deliver people in Peter's day, guess what? He can still do it today. You know, if, if God could heal then, He can still heal today. If God could provide then, He can still provide today. If He was the God of protection and provision then, guess what? He still is today. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. We need to have faith in Him, trust in his, that He's in control, trust that He's going to do what He knows is best. You know, some, one thing I haven't talked about yet in this, some may read this and ask this question, what about James? Like, weren't the people praying for him? Well, I'm sure they were. Well, why'd God let him die? I'll be honest with you, I don't have any idea. Because in God's sovereign plan, it was James's time to go and it wasn't Peter's. Um, you know, Hebrews 9.27 tells us that every person is destined to die once and after that face judgment. We, we, we all have a time. Our days are numbered. Scripture says so. All the days of our life are planned out for us. How many of those days are? I don't know. And be quite honest with you, I don't want to know. I want it to be a surprise. <laughs> but what I know is this. Peter wasn't the only one that Jesus told, talked to about their future. In Matthew 20, and verses 20 and 23, James and John, their, their mother, comes before Jesus and, and says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, here's what I want. I want my boys, James and John, I want one to sit on your right and one to sit on your left, meaning they need to have a position of authority in Jesus' kingdom. And, and this is what Jesus' response was. He says to them, you don't know what you're asking. And he asked, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? And Peter and John's response was this, oh yes, we're able. Well, Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup. It was prophetic. He was telling them the future. And this is exactly what James experienced. And can I tell you something? John experienced the same thing. He, he wasn't executed by the sword you know, James lived probably 30 years or 35 years, I don't know. John lived to be, they say, up into his 90s. But John's life, was, he, he experienced persecution the entire way. I mean, he, at one point he was boiled in oil, made it through miraculously, but then he was chucked out on a prison island for the rest of his days. I mean, he suffered. And, and the question we should ask ourselves is like, well, who really had it better? I mean, we, we look at death as like the worst possible scenario, the, the final end, and yet, was, is it really? No, it's just the beginning. I mean, think about this. James, he was with Jesus. His pain, his suffering, sin, no more, he, he was with Jesus. John had to spend another 40, 50 years in this mess. Who, who really had it worse? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, he says, If anybody desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But listen to what he says here. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, James, 
He may have died, but he passed from this life into a much greater life for all of eternity. And as for John, I, I think of what the Apostle Paul says, that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It, it's better for me that I stay with you, but I would sure much rather go and be with my Lord. John, the Apostle John, lived that. You don't think he wanted to be with his Savior? Oh, he did. And yet he had work to do, and it just wasn't his time. Anyways, that, it, it is what it is, but the point of it is, I guarantee you James experienced the same peace as Peter did, as John did throughout his life, and we can too. And just my final thought as we close is this. We need to be a church of prayer. This, what the church do in this situation? They prayed. They got together. Friends, we are going to go through things in our lives that we are never meant to handle on our own. When we're struggling, when we're dealing with things, when we have problems, it's, it, we need to lean into God, yes, but can I tell you something? We need to lean into one another. That's what the church is here for. It's not just random people that come together. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family. And, and family holds each other up. And what I can tell you is this, when we, when we gather together and we pray for one another, God hears. 1 Peter 3.12 says, The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. 1 John 5.14 and 15, we can be confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our request, we can also know that he will give us what we ask for. Can I tell you something? It pleases God when brothers and sisters in Christ come together in unity. Scripture says so. It pleases him. We're as children. When we come together to do stuff like this, we can be certain that he hears us, and we can be certain that he's going to respond. Because that's what his word says. And his word says it, I believe it. Friends, we serve an amazing God. Let's never forget it. Let's trust him. Let's lean on him. Let's be the light of this world that we're called to be. And let's give him glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for this time, for the encouragement, God, that comes through it. God, I am so thankful that we have the stories of these men and women that have gone before us that have just, have showed us what right looks like. Lord Peter had his struggles. James had his struggles. And yet, Lord, they end up being men that were completely sold out for you. Willingly giving their lives for the mission that you've given them, for the glory of your name. Lord God, I just pray that you would give us the same boldness as they had. The same tenacity in, in their witnesses they had, God. I pray you would give it to us. Lord, if we can just have a fraction of the impact that they had in the world, God, I, that would be fantastic. God, right here where we're at in Stillman Valley, Davis Junction, in this area, Lord God, let us have an impact. Let us be used by you. Let us be a light to these people. Let, let us show them what living for Christ is all about. Let's, let's show them what, when we go through trials, let's show them what true peace is. And when they look on us, when we're going through something difficult, and they ask that question, how can you go through that with a smile? We can tell them it's because of Jesus. God, give us that grace. Give us that strength. Help us to be your hands and feet to this world. God, the only other thing I would ask is if there's any other, anybody in this place or anybody listening to this that has never made a decision to follow Christ, God, let today be the day of their salvation. Let them in faith just call out to you, to call out to Jesus and ask him to become the Lord and Savior of their lives. And God, your word says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we're going to trust you at your word. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you. 
be glorified in us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we close tonight, we're going to sing a song of this response and invitation. And 